Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Literacy Podcast. We can't wait for today because we have a policy expert from Excel in Ed, and I'm just excited to talk about policy because I don't know that much about policy, so she's going to give us all the details. Yeah, this is not not our forte usually, but it's really exciting because we talk a lot about, you know, the science of reading, and we've talked about like, oh, it needs to get into ed schools and really pushing that, Um, and now there's kind of a push for like getting it into laws, like state law, and um, I, I... can't wait to hear someone who knows what they're talking about with it <laughs> and what and what it really means like what really what does it really mean when we're saying there's like a law for science of reading like what does that yeah. really look like that's a good question so let's hear from that someone special welcome yeah. to the podcast <laughs> so much ladies I am so excited to be here I've heard so much about this dynamic duo so thank you for <laughs> inviting me to join you today uh Hi, everyone. I'm Kimiana Burke, and I am the Policy Director for Early Literacy um, at the Foundation for Excellence in Education. It's uh, otherwise known as Excel in Ed. And um, we work across the country with states that are either considering passing policies uh, related to our core components, um, the policies that we support, such as you know, accountability, college and career pathways, and then, of course, my area, which is early literacy, So we support the legislators in doing that uh, and making sure that the language that's in the bills are actually practical uh, and things that can be implemented um, on the ground. Uh, But then also I have the joy of working with state literacy leaders who are implementing these policies. You know, it's one thing to pass it, but then there's another thing to actually put it into practice. So I work very closely with um, state literacy leaders who are charged with uh, leading the implementation of these laws. And so um, it's a, a very unique uh, position. I'm uh, excited <laughs> to be a part of this work nationally. Yeah, so it's funny. it's funny because every time you say, uh, I mean, I know we've had a pre-call, so we've talked, but you're like talking <laughs> about the bills and I picture the schoolhouse rock where there, you know, how <laughs> a bill becomes a law, which is totally ridiculous because that was like a long, long time ago. <laughs> Probably still pretty similar. <laughs> well, I mean, the schoolhouse rock was very long time ago. <laughs> so I think it's really, in- I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear your background because I think it's very unique yeah. and special. Um, because when you were, you know, talking in our pre-call, I kept thinking, was she a teacher? Was she a, a lawyer? You, like what? How do you get into this? <laughs> yeah. So would you mind sharing a little bit about your background and how you got here? Sure. I mean, I definitely didn't grow up saying I was going to be a policy director <laughs> for early right. literacy for a foundation, uh, but I wanted to be an attorney. So uh, fun fact, my father was an educator. Uh, he was this chemistry geek and he taught um, for all the years that I, you know, all of the years that I knew him, of course. And so uh, I just came through this channel in, in such a unique way. My undergraduate degree is in political science. So I love the politics of it all. I've, I've always liked politics. Uh, but one of my aunt's friends suggested that I take a year off before law school and substitute teach. I said, hey, why not, right? Fresh <laughs> college. I said, okay, let's, let's do this. And 
My first day of substitute teaching, I was at an elementary school and the principal walked by my class several times. And I was like, am I in trouble? I just, <laughs> just awful at this. And um, by the end of the day, she offered me a job. And the job was to be a reading teacher to first grade students. And they were implementing the Success for All literacy program there. And so that's how I began. And when I say I fell in love with um just the students and how their their eyes would just light up. Now I did get pink eye three times in one year, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, Philly, but um, during that year I became certified. I became certified to teach English. That had always kind of been a strong suit of mine as well. So certified to teach English, and I taught in a middle school and high school. But um, the year that I was really challenged as an educator was the year where I was recruited to teach at the International Baccalaureate uh, School mm-hmm. to teach English to ninth graders and principals changed. And so during the summer and so when I came uh, to get my class assignments, the new principal said, well, you're going to teach IB students and then you're going to teach a class of repeaters. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? So <laughs> she said, well, there's this class of students who failed one or two grades and we want you to teach them as well. And so um, seeing those high school students uh, struggle um, the way that they were struggling and, you know, it, I began to ask, how did you get here? You know, or how many teachers failed you, honestly? Uh, and you're sitting in this classroom and, and you don't know how to read. And that began my, my work and my passion with uh, literacy. So um, I went back. Got a few degrees. Uh, my last one was in early childhood education and started doing literacy and, and reading and those things. And lo and behold, Mississippi passes this Literacy-Based Promotion Act. And I was um, selected to lead that effort in 2013. And now here we are. <laughs> so yeah. interesting <laughs> indeed. Political science degree actually comes in handy these days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about Mississippi on several podcasts. We've talked Mm -hmm. to people from Mississippi, um, Dr. Green, Kristen Wins. We've talked to a Mm -hmm. few people, but I'm really excited to hear from your side, um, like what what happened in Mississippi? Because there's a lot of spotlight (laughs) on on that state. You know, ladies, I'll say this. I, I really believe that it had to be Mississippi. It had to be Mississippi to have these gains, uh, especially, you know, in 2019 with Nate, uh, so that the rest of the country can say, I mean, if Mississippi can do it, you know, let's find out what they're doing in Mississippi. So I really think that it had to be us. Um, But, you know, over the years, we have really invested in um, our teachers and invested in ensuring that we were building knowledge, building a common knowledge for what it meant to teach students how to read. And um, we, you know, I always talk about it in three, three buckets, three components. So our law guides us in these things. What are we going to do for our teachers to build support for our teachers and build knowledge for our teachers and our administrators? Then what are we going to do to support our students And then lastly, what are we doing to support our parents and families? And we took that model from our law, um, from the state agency and said, okay, let's develop guidance for our districts. Let's train our teachers. Let's put our literacy coaches in schools to provide that on-site support. Um, and, And then of course, let's empower our parents and families. And I think with the way that our law was written, it specifically names the signs of reading. 
Mm-hmm. And um, from there, we were able to procure the professional development. And that starts our, uh, our, our structure. You know, that's the baseline of it all. And, and I always say we invested in people, not programs. Uh, because when you invest in people, you empower them and give them the knowledge to be able to choose the right <laughs> programs yeah. in order to, to carry out um, effective literacy instruction in the classroom. So just over the years, um, when we began to see success, you know, it was in our first time seeing the success was in 2015, which was really, really shortly after our laws passed in 2013. Yeah. When I say everyone began to rally around that, I mean, it happens everywhere. You know, when you, when you decide to to lose weight or to exercise and then you lose that first two pounds, you're just like, oh, I could do this every day, right? You know, <laughs> just to do this. And so for us, we needed that. We needed that early win to show that us win. that we could do it. Yeah. Um, and then we have just been um, doing it ever since. So I'm curious, um, I'm actually, I'm assuming it was intentional naming the science of reading in that in that policy? That was an intentional move? Yeah. So um, I can't take the credit um, because I wasn't hired yet. But the State Department of Education, our Mississippi Department of Ed, actually worked with Excel in Ed. So uh, it's all full circle for me. This is <laughs> it's, it's, it's an amazing space to be in. But MDE worked with uh, Excel in Ed because Florida passed a similar law in 2002. And so our then governor, uh, Phil Bryant, worked with Excel in Ed to craft our law after Florida's law that has been successful. Um, so the language was intentional and it was included and um, it just really gave us a blueprint. And I always say that it's not one of these 50 page bills. It's not, you know, one of these laws that goes on and on and on. It really gets to the point of what is to be done to improve literacy outcomes in Mississippi. And, um, we really did have our, our, I guess I'll say our, our powerful three, which includes our support from the governor, the support from our, and, and just great leadership from our state superintendent, and then of course support from our legislators to, to really make this thing work. Yeah. Melissa and I always pause because we can read each other so well that like we know that the other wants to ask a question. Do you want to ask a question, Melissa? Go for it, Lori. <laughs> I'm curious what that success looked like in 2015. That was a quick win that then helped you jump forward. Okay. So there were a few things taking place at the same time. When this law was passed, we had recently adopted our college and career readiness standards. So our teachers had started, uh, had begun training in, in those standards, which were so much more rigorous than our, uh, we called it our Mississippi curriculum test. And we were on our second version of it uh, with the objectives and we were still last in the country, right? So we decided to do something differently. Um, that was during the same time, you know, everybody was adopting Common Core. And I know I shouldn't say that in this day and time, uh, but we uh, adopted those standards, uh, modified them to uh, become our Mississippi College and Career Readiness Standards and begin that implementation. So we now have more rigorous standards. Uh, we also adopted an assessment that was aligned to those standards. Um, and then we said, we're gonna focus on literacy. So we had these three things going on at the same time. But one thing that we were doing that 
was a bit different than what had been done before, especially in the era of reading first and and those different initiatives where money was just being spent and and um right. no real right uh, facilitation of, of those things. We actually had, and Dr. Wright would say, a state-led approach. And from the state agency, we hired the literacy coaches who would be going into the schools to support teachers. We determined where they would go, where they would be deployed based on student data, based on these students, these schools being a part of our lowest performing schools list. Um, we guided um, districts. Yes, and we're local control. You know, you, you sometimes hear states make this, well, we're local control. Yeah, we're local control, but we give you what we call guided decision making. You can make your decision, but from this list of decisions, <laughs> so <laughs> these are these are the best practices. And so, yes, you can do anything you want from this list. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's kind of like what we do with like a like a you know a child, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure, you can have fruit or fruit for a snack. <laughs> you can choose one. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Your choice. Um, so. You know, we began to just really take the lead. And I and I I think that you know, after the first till so the first year, you know, we had schools say we don't want the State Department in our building because you're really just known as an agency, right? <laughs> you're known yes. as this, you know, the, the state takeover place or the auditing place. But I, I really believe putting literacy coaches in those buildings as an extension of our state agency um, really helped schools and district leaders to look at us differently, not just as this agency that's going to come down with their clipboards, but as this agency that is going to support us on the ground. So it it was so important that we not only passed this law, the law was also funded, nine and a half million dollars the first year, 15 million dollars each year thereafter. But we also put supports in the schools. We said, so we're going to help you get there, not just Mm -hmm. to make sure students are ready to read by the end of third grade, but we're going to help you get there. And putting those coaches in the schools, showing them that we were there literally on the ground with them to support them along the way, went a long way. Uh, And it kind of shifted the perception of the agency. So we started getting a lot of superintendents calling. I mean, wanted to come to our trainings, wanted to be a part of our, um, you know, committees and task forces and all of those things. Uh, And I, and I believe that that has been key to, to building those relationships uh, for us all to collectively work together. So it happened pretty quickly when we saw that five scales, four point gain jump from uh, 2013 to 2015, we went from a scale score of 209 in fourth grade reading to 214. I mean, big press conference and all of that, but you have to know once you do that, the pressure is on to continue to do that. So every, every other year I was sitting like, Lord, I'm waiting on these Nate scores, please (laughs) (laughs) continue to move in the right direction. So, and we've been able to do that. So Camille, I think that, um, the third grade retention is what gets a lot of attention, right? Especially when it's a law (laughs) and and can maybe get some like, you know, people fired up a little of like what you're going to hold students back. Um, But what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. you say is, you know, it wasn't just that. It wasn't just like, let's put a law in place and everything stays the same. (laughs) And now we just start holding teachers to a a higher standard, um, students to a higher standard, but that there was a lot that was put into place to support it. Is that? Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of writing about it right now. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, you know, we, we focus a lot on the end of the third grade, 
But at the end of the day, a comprehensive policy, a good policy, those policies that are excelling we really, you know, guide our legislators into um, to drafting and passing. They include all of these supports that happen before the end of third grade. And I think that that just hasn't gotten enough attention. You know, what are the things that are being done to prevent uh, reading failure or to prevent retention at the end of third grade? And guess what? A whole lot happens in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and third grade before end of your testing even occurs. And I think that that's the picture that we really need to uh, paint and just highlight especially for other stakeholders who aren't in education or don't do policy and, and they don't necessarily know, all they hear is if students don't pass an assessment, they'll be retained at the end of third grade. Mm-hmm. So right. when you talk about those things that I mentioned, you know, ensuring that teachers are trained, ensuring that students are, you know, have those assessments so teachers can make those instructional decisions beginning as early as kindergarten, you know, then all of these supports along the way, um, making sure that parents are notified, making sure parents know how they can help teachers uh, in ensuring that their children are successful. All of these things happen before an end of the year third grade assessment. And with most states that have retention, I believe all states that have a retention piece, they have what's called good cause exemptions. So these are things that parents must be aware about and uh, aware of. And those are some of the things in our first couple of years with our Literacy Act in Mississippi, where we did parent meetings across the state. Because you have to let parents know, well, hey, if your child has an IEP or 504, he or she may qualify for a good cause exemption. And what is that? A good cause exemption is if your child fails the assessment and this um, child has had years of intensive intervention and they still didn't pass, but they meet these particular criteria and IEP 504 is just one of them, then your child may qualify. But these are things you need to know ahead of time so that you can be empowered to assist teachers in making these decisions about your child. So I think that all of these things um, should be highlighted and then say for those students who still do not meet the criteria for passing to fourth grade, then they will be retained in third grade, but the goal is for them to get a completely different experience. You, you see things in laws where it says that, you know, students must have a highly qualified or higher performing teacher if they are retained, that students continue to receive intensive supports if they are retained, um, that the progress monitoring still takes place, the data is still collected and instructional decisions are being modified to meet those needs. So all of these things should take place in that year for any student who has not met uh, the criteria for promotion. Yeah, I'm, I, as you were chatting or as you were uh, sharing, I would jot it down that that collaborative approach that you're speaking about, it just feels so empowering, you know, as I imagine that parents in this, the state feel as though they can truly advocate for their child. Um, I know sometimes like it does feel like if you're a parent who doesn't know about literacy, it does feel like the, you know, the teacher or the school is like telling you all about it and you don't necessarily have a say, but you know, really nobody knows their child best than the parent. And, right. <laughs> you know, especially I, I, since the pandemic started. Yes. <laughs> you know, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, I feel like we know more than our, about our kids than we probably ever wanted to, <laughs> how they learn best, et cetera. Um, but, you know, you're really empowering families and not just parents. I want to be, um, make sure I'm using language uh, appropriately, right. families to em- empower them with knowledge 
so that right. they're they're truly able to collaboratively work with the school system to advocate for their child and to and to really know like know what the the laws say at least in a way that they can access the information mm-hmm. and that empowers them to to right. do the work of a parent you know right you know it's it, you hear these stories about parents saying well i didn't know until the end of the school year that my child was, was not going to pass that actually happens mm. in many cases you know so with this law it says that parents must be notified after the first 30 days when students are screened parents are notified if their child has or exhibits uh you know characteristics of, of dyslexia or has a reading deficiency Parents must be notified early and often. It shouldn't be a surprise at the end of the year. You shouldn't have parents saying, well, I wish I would have known I would have been able to get tutoring or I would have been able to, you know, help my child more. Or, you know, we have an older sibling that could. You don't want those types of situations. Um, And parents are our child's first teacher. It's cliche, but. It is. True. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. And so we do want to make sure that we have students for a certain time during the day and the parents have them from the evening and they have all of these intimate moments with students and children where they can talk to them about what they learned today or they can ask them these questions about, well, when we saw this TV show, what did you think about it? Comprehension strategies, all of these things that parents can also do that's not in a formal setting but can assist their children in understanding even oral language, communication, all of those things um, where parents and families really play an important role. And, and we have to leverage that. We can't mm-hmm. do it ourselves. We have to leverage that. It reminds me of Emily Hanford's, one of her pod, latest podcasts where it's, she talks to a parent who finds out that her student in middle school yeah. is reading at like a second grade level. And she's like, why am I just finding this out now? Yes, <laughs> yes. that's real life, girls. That's real. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. I think that, I think that speaks to your prioritization of the investment in people and, mm-hmm. you know, the investment mm-hmm. in, obviously you're investing in families and and parents, but you're also investing in in teachers and building that knowledge for them. And so I'm wondering what knowledge did you build for teachers in in the trainings that, you know, I know that I'm sure you didn't just put these literacy coaches in school and you were like, have at it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was it was important for us and Melissa, you mentioned um early on about the role of teacher prep. You know, so we, we had to to take accountability for the fact that we knew that our teachers were coming from different teacher prep programs. We have about 15 public and private universities here in Mississippi. Uh, and then, of course, especially even those teachers who come from out of state. So to establish a baseline, uh, this is what this is what it means to teach students effectively grounded in the science of reading, not just phonics. You know, because there are some other components, too, that seem to be left out in some conversations. But we had to take ownership of ensuring that our teachers had that knowledge. And I always say, I've said it to my students, I've said it to my staff, you know, I can't hold someone accountable unless I know for sure that I've taught it. Right. Mm -hmm. Hold you accountable on a test for knowing uh, figurative language if I haven't taught it to you. So for us in Mississippi, it was. We have to be sure that when we lay our heads down to sleep at night, we know that we've taught you these things. Now the expectation is that we see these things in practice, right? So for us, it was 
teaching teachers how to uh, assess students. You know, you get these reports that say, hey, well, these students have these particular deficiencies. You can group them together and you can provide small group instruction to these students. Okay, but what does that look like, right? Mm-hmm. So in the training that they had, and it's no secret, we chose letters here in Mississippi uh, through Voyager Sopris, um, that we went with the model where only letters, Voyager Surface Sopris trainers trained our teachers. That's just how we decided to go, right? That's the route we decided to go. Because we did not want, you know, across the state where there is a, a trainer in South Mississippi that says some things about the number of phonemes in a word and the trainer in North Mississippi says some things and there's a different number and all of that. We want to ensure that our teachers had access to trainers who had been in, deeply involved in this work and that we could have consistent language across the state. Mm-hmm. If we would not have done that to build their knowledge, our coaches would have been starting at zero every day because now they've gone to this training and our coaches can come in and say, we know you've had letters. So let's talk about what that looks like with your students. Let's transfer that into actual practice with your kids and then to guide them and give them the support along the way. So it was extremely important for us to first build that knowledge. And yes, our coaches, um, you know, the initial number was supposed to be 75 for the first year and they hired 22 plus me and my assistant director at the time. Oh my. And so, yeah, oh, I have the headlines from the newspaper articles. <laughs> you tell us that you couldn't find 75 people. And guess what? In 2013, we couldn't. Yeah. yeah. But in 2015 or 2016, I believe, we had up to 80. So we were able to do that because we built their knowledge. So yeah. when they interviews to become literacy coaches we were like oh yeah you've had letters oh yeah you've had a coach in your building because you know how to build relationships so these were things that we had to put into place and that we had to say we want to go with quality over quantity you know the cliche but for real you know because it really doesn't matter what you know if you've had success in your classroom but you have to know how to play well with other adults. You really have to know how to have those conversations and for adults to trust you, for them to even consider uh, your suggestions as to how they should change their practice in their own classroom. So all of those things went together. Yeah, and it makes so much sense that like everyone's speaking the same language, right? Because often it's like, you know, we just do a PD over here, we do a PD over there, but I mean, you guys picked letters. It doesn't necessarily have to be that, but that's a great example of like, everyone's doing this. The coach is doing letters, the teacher's doing letters. I'm assuming school leaders. Oh yeah. (laughs) School leaders were doing letters and you know, it was amazing to go on. We, so we have uh, this process called a learning walk and we'll do a learning walk in the fall, a learning walk in the spring. And so a learning walk is just when you have a team uh, that includes the literacy coach, uh, you know, even their regional coordinator or a state director, and then the principal and their APs or a lead teacher or and even people from the district office, where we actually walk, mm-hmm. <laughs> go to, to the classrooms and maybe stand in the classroom about 10 to 15 minutes. We have a, uh, an instrument that we use to just kind of jot down what we see. And then our debriefing is where we say, okay, these are our commendations. These are the things that we see that are going well. These are our recommendations. So this is where we level set to say, okay, 
this is where the coach is going to help you with this recommendation. This is where the principal has to take the lead. This is where your district personnel has to take the lead. And that's our plan. This is our baseline data. And then in the fall, for baseline data for coaching support and for just supporting their teachers. And then in the spring, we come back and do another learning walk and we say, oh, great, you did these things. These are great. Yes, and we still need to, you know, assist you in changing these things because to change a culture, you know, you have to change a culture, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's um, that thought, you know. it's that shift in mindset from like, you know, it's hard to, to to break up with the old ways if that's what oh, yeah. you were taught in college, if that's what you've been exposed to. For, it's, it's hard, but when you see the new ways working, which really aren't that new, but that's a whole nother conversation, you know, <laughs> um, it, it does build, it, it builds your confidence and it builds your buy-in. Yeah. And when the administrator knows what he or she should be looking for, yes, <laughs> sets the entire tone. And it's not because you know, of their program or these things, it's because, you know, hey, I was an 11th grade English teacher. I had my master's in ed administration and a position opened at the elementary school to be an administrator and I got it. So now I'm going to go in and I'm going to be this principal. But what happens is in those K-2 areas, they don't necessarily go into those areas (laughs) because, you know, you see kids talking or you see them sitting on mats, crisscross applesauce, you see all of those things. (laughs) say, oh, wow, it's going so well in there. But if you're sitting in a classroom and you don't necessarily know what this is, the phonics routine, or hey, you skipped a couple of steps, you know, then it becomes challenging for the principal to be able to provide that feedback. And I always say to administrators, you have to be an evaluator and a coach. You know, you have to be that school leader, but you also have to coach teachers up to ensure that uh, first, you're able to retain these teachers, right? That your turnover is not uh, high every year, that you're able to yeah. retain these teachers and, and that you're able to make them the best teachers that they can be under your leadership. Yeah. yeah. And just, I'm going to circle back to the letters training one more time. So I'm okay. halfway through my letters training. <laughs> nice. um, I don't know how you all did it, but we're doing it in a two-year it's two years. So I finished my first year. Um, But I mean, it's a deep training. So I think oftentimes, you know, we hear like, oh, a principal went to a training and it's like, they went to a one day, they learned about a program and now they're going through with their checklist to see what they see in classrooms. But I mean, letters training is deep. And like, (laughs) I mean, I was trained to be a reading specialist, but I still say letters has trained me better. (laughs) Yes. Um, It really, it really is to know that principals, coaches, teachers are getting that deep level of training and can speak to the complexities of how to teach the English language (laughs) to students is amazing. So a moment of transparency. Uh, When we initially adopted letters for our teachers, we actually adopted principals primer for our administrators. So we did have a separate training for our administrators. Now, that can't imagine it was one day, though. <laughs> no, it, but you know what? It was, I believe it was two days. Melissa. Oh, was it? <laughs> uh, so we got you by one. It was In that That's training, okay. it was so that administrators can serve as literacy leaders. It was yeah, yeah, yeah. ensure that your scheduling allows for an uninterrupted 90-minute reading block? Or how do you ensure that your, you know, RTI then MTSS now, you know, that system is being um, is being done correctly? Who needs to be at the table and those things? But it really did not go deeply into um, what it looks like to ensure that um, vocabulary is being taught or what it looks like when, when students are 
are uh, working with syllables, the initial sounds, the medial sounds and word families. It didn't have any of those things there. But, you know, we realized after about a year and a half, we had some administrators saying, okay, but I still don't know what's happening in the classroom. Right. You know, you can come all day and see the structure, but I still don't know what's happening. So really, after the first couple of years, um, we did away with principal's primer and we then required all of our administrators to go through letters just like the teachers. Because yeah. um, I, I remember during the first couple of years, we did a learning walk in the school and the principal was walking around with me. And by the time we got to the fourth grade, the fourth, I'm sorry, classroom, that principal said, oh, wait, wait, I know what this is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, that's so good. This is now, you know, now that I've seen it three other times, you know, I know what this is. But I mean, it's it's really making sure that the principals know what they're looking for so they can hold teachers accountable uh, for making sure that these things are done effectively in the classroom. And again, acknowledging that shift too. Like this is, oh, yeah. it, this is not, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know what to call it. Like old school leadership um, rather than mm-hmm. support, supportive, like elbow yeah. partner leadership. Like mm-hmm. when you think about it, old school leadership was like, I'm going to walk in with a checklist, check, check, right. check, you know, oh, we're teaching phonics. Oh, we're teaching um, this book. And that's, mm-hmm. I know that's in the curriculum. So um, I'm check. And now I'm out right. to the next room. Right. It was very like yes. scannable, <laughs> if you will. Whereas mm-hmm. what's the shift? And it's, I mean, obviously we do this podcast and we are obsessed with everything that you're saying. So we totally <laughs> believe that this is the right way to go. It's, it's so much deep knowledge, but it's, it's a lot for administrators. We have to acknowledge that too. Like they have to become like almost literacy experts and they have to become probably also almost math experts. Like they have Mm -hmm. to know so much about, you know, two very big buckets that I, I, I assume it could be overwhelming at times, but I think with supports like yours, you know, that you're right. putting in place and saying like, hey, we're all learning together. This is, you're not expected to be a, a master in this tomorrow. Like, you know. Right. <laughs> right. Some of our coaches, you know, we, we always talk about coaches going into coach teachers, but in many cases, it became the relationship where the coaches were also coaching the administrators. And we also created this, amazing resource uh, called Literacy Focus of the Month. So I would always have my coaches to do summer projects. And so for one summer, uh, our project was to do this Literacy Focus of the Month manual. I had done it on a smaller scale when I was a literacy coach, but I'm like, I wanted to go broad and big and for the whole state. So for each month, there's a literacy focus. And in this manual, there's one for elementary and secondary. There are all of these strategies that um, represent what can be done to, to focus on phonological awareness or to focus on morphology or to focus on these things. And so one of my coaches had this amazing idea and said, well, let's show them what this looks like in practice. So then we started Literacy Focus of the Month in action, where we, <laughs> our media person at the MBE, learned so much about literacy because our coaches literacy literally went across the state went into classrooms and modeled these strategies with students. And so these videos, they're on YouTube uh, under MBE underscore literacy. And you get to see all of these videos where the first part is a brief, probably 10 minute PowerPoint that gives the research behind it. And then it moves into the coach actually teaching the lesson in class and students responding and, and all of these things. So you get to see them based on specific components of literacy. And I remember getting an email from a principal at 12 o'clock, like at midnight, 
Uh-huh. <laughs> Thank you. I just watched some videos <laughs> and now I see what I'm supposed to be looking for. So that, uh-huh. yes, that is extremely important for them to have uh, access to different modes of learning like we do students, <laughs> right so not just here's the research but also you know videos to see this is what it looks like and then this is what it looks like again I'm, I'm really big on that I don't know about you guys but honestly coming up and teaching when I saw all of these videos of these video kids you know <laughs> the teachers asking questions and all of the students are raising their hands like yeah. I have the answer to that and you're like it's not my class you know <laughs> to be you're like I ask a hard question and I get like <laughs> Maybe one, the same kid. <laughs> yes, the same kid all the time. And so, you know, to, to have these videos that um, everyone has access to in case they don't want to say, well, I don't know what that looks like. They can actually go to this video to say, well, you know, I see this uh, coach teaching this class about morphology and how to break that down and how they get to these things. Um, I think it's also an added resource. We are resource queens here uh, and we have two male coaches, so I'll say kings, uh, <laughs> where we love developing things uh, to for access and for guidance for our educators. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you guys did amazing work in Mississippi, but I also don't want to run out of time. No, <laughs> I want to talk about too. what you're right. doing now. So if yeah. you want to talk a little bit about how you got to your current role and what 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 do you do? Yeah, so in my current role, uh, I work directly with 18 states uh, that have passed, whether it's a comprehensive policy that includes all of these components of, you know, universal screening and training and teacher prep and and even retention, um, or states that have passed other components of the policy related to uh, possibly universal screening or teacher PD or those things. And we work together as a professional learning community where we meet quarterly um, to our highlight states that are doing these innovative things around early literacy and other states are able to learn from from those states. And then we'll also have work sessions or collaborative group sessions where we're developing um, documents uh, and guidance for the country. So it's really a great opportunity to work with so many people in these leadership roles and to see it differently. You know, I mentioned earlier, you know, for professional development, this is just one way that Mississippi has done it, but other places are doing it different ways and it's fine, you know, and it still works for them and for their state. So, you know, our goal, um, one of our products is going to be to create this comprehensive how-to guide for state leaders and, and also for legislators to see, well, if you're if your climate is not ready for the retention component, <laughs> you know, the, the, pro, the promotion piece based on an assessment or portfolio or these things, these are still some ways in which you can ensure that those students who may be identified uh, as having reading challenges going into fourth grade can either attend a summer camp, they can do summer bridge programs, they can do those things. So just to give other options. Uh, and then on the other side, we have our advocacy C4 side of, of Excelling Ed which includes our legislative directors who lobby, uh, who work closely with legislators. And then once they hear that they're interested in early literacy, then I get the call. Uh, <laughs> talk to those legislators more about uh, what needs to be included in the bill. Or when I see language, I say, hey, well, that's not doable, really. You know, <laughs> uh, let's change that language to say this. Um, and I've had the unique opportunity of testifying in committee, uh, serving as 
an expert uh, <laughs> to give expert testimony uh, in Alaska and in Florida and well, not in those places via Zoom, of course. <laughs> but yeah. it's just such a unique experience to know that it, you know when you think about legislators and you, you see sometimes you'll you'll pass C-SPAN or these other channels where you just kind of see them all sitting there, um, but they're really doing some really good work. They're doing the homework, you know, behind what uh, should be in these bills and and you know ultimately these laws, and they're really seeking partnerships and support. You know, we have decoding dyslexia that has been, um, of course, a great force uh, in ensuring that literacy laws and even, of course, laws that include um, students with dyslexia and supports for those students are, are being passed. You know, we have the Reading League, of which I am a board member, so I wanted to shout them out. Um, oh, yeah, We interviewed them. Yes, uh, um, that has done some groundbreaking work across the country. And now we have so many chapters in our state. So that helps to find, it, it really does help to have a coalition of, of not just the big three that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, but other stakeholders within that specific state that are all, you know, um, wanting to meet the same goal. I'm wondering about, you said 18 states? Yes. Is that right? It feels like on one hand, like all right, like we're, we're making some progress. But that's a <laughs> yeah. whole lot of states yeah. that are not doing this work. Yeah. I don't know, where do you, where do you land on that? <laughs> you know, um, I'll say this. There has been, you know, I always have to pause so I can make sure it's a politically correct thing. Um, but I'll, I'll say this, you know, there are states that are higher performing states um, whether it's based on NAEP, whether it's based on their state test scores, their higher performing states. Um, and so I'll, I'll say this about the equity piece. So I have to say this, of course, if I'm going to be on your podcast. So I'll say this. Absolutely. Piece. Um, you know, there are states that can mask uh, the data of their subgroups because the data of their white students shows that overall the state may be doing well or overall a district may be doing well. But we have to be we, we have to begin to dig into, you know, what supports are being provided to ensure that all students are being successful. You know, mm-hmm. not just the majority white students, but what are we doing to ensure that our black and brown students are are also being successful? Um, so there are some states that, you know, although we see them as higher performing states, know that there's an organization, a legislator or someone who has reached out to Excel in Ed to say, we, we really need to do something about this and we may need to pass a law to make sure it's done. And so, you know, we, we do ask the question, why does it even have to be a law, right? Why does it have to be a law to say we have to teach students how to read? We do know that there's been a lawsuit in California. There's been a lawsuit in Detroit where students have won. That said, I have a right to read and you are supposed to teach me, you know, um, Mm. how to do that. So there are states with with that just are not a part of our network, possibly uh, that are looking to develop bills or looking to strengthen some of the things that they may already have on the books. Um, And that's one of the things that happened in North Carolina. If you even Google uh, some of the things that have occurred with Read to Achieve over the years, you see now why they made this such a bold move to say, 
we're going to revamp that because that wasn't meeting the needs of our kids. You know, we had the idea, but we really didn't implement it the way that we should have to meet the needs of all students. And so that was the purpose of them passing this new law um, just recently. Yeah. We think a lot about unintended consequences. And I think there's that unintended consequence of, you know, you can think through something to the nth degree and, there's still in practice going to be some unintended consequences that happen, yes. you know, because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, I, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say a law ensures that not just our higher performing districts, but all of our districts have access to student to teachers who have the knowledge, mm-hmm. right? Uh, not just those districts who can afford to send teachers to train. Uh, it also ensures that, you know, all of our students are, uh, receiving the intensive interventions that they need, not just in those uh, districts or schools that can afford an interventionist, right? So you think about what a law actually does. A lot of people don't like, the, you know, they say, I don't want to legislate everything, right? <laughs> but this is important enough to legislate. This is important to enough to say, you know, if we don't put this in writing and if we don't make this a mandate, then it is likely not to occur for too many students. One is too many, right? So it's likely to occur uh, and happen for those students. So that's why I'm such a proponent and and just really passionate and just, again, blessed to be in this space to be able to to affect change um, across the country. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because I was thinking earlier, like, what's the difference between putting it into a law and just having the state department say to do something, right? (laughs) Um, Right. But what you just said is it, right? It's just, this is important enough. (laughs) Like we, Mm -hmm. we need it. I mean, obviously it's important enough, right? Because we've gotten to this place where so many children are not reading. I mean, and I'm children all the way through high school, like adults, adults who have been through our system, there's a systemic issue that, that is going on and there needs to be a major shift. And this is, I think, just one way for it to happen. Like, it's just one part. This is just one piece of the puzzle, right? That then Mm -hmm. influences that change. Yeah. Right. Because the rubber meets the road in those classrooms. You know, we, yeah. we pass these laws and, you know, I think for us, having coaches in the buildings helped us with um, ensuring that implementation was happening, you know, because even as a state department, we think about all the guidance in the world. But if, is there anyone, you know, the inspect what you expect rule? Is there yeah. anyone really on the ground inspecting this? making sure that our expectations for small group instruction, our expectation for the 90 minute reading block not being interrupted by the announcements for the school day, (laughs) you know, all of these other things. Is there anyone there that actually makes sure that these things are happening? And for us, our coaches, although they weren't in there to say, hey, you know, you don't have this 90 minute reading block. So I'm going to make sure that the State Department knows they were there to say, hey, your schedule hasn't allowed for a 90-minute reading block. So let's sit down and look at your schedule in ways in which we can make sure that that happens. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's just a completely different approach uh, to, to having those eyes and boots on the ground to support implementation because implementation is key. I think what strikes me is that um, you, you took this model and then you blew it up large scale, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, from my interpretation and feel free to add or correct me. It's both top down with the, the policy and then mm-hmm. bottom up with the coaches and the, 
you know, um, professional learning and, and all of this knowledge that you're building, as well as having the, the humans, um, the coaches who are there to support. So you're having the support as well as this, like, well, I mean, it says we must do this. So we're going to support you in doing this and, and let's work together. Yes. Perfectly say it. Yep. That's, that's how it, it worked for us. And, you know, in, in these cases, because we were able to protect our coaches time. So if you talk to anyone about coaching, you know, that the, the time protecting the time is the most important thing. Oh yeah. And, you know, I would start the year off <laughs> with my coaches saying, if a principal offers you a walkie talkie, don't take it, right? <laughs> your bus duty. Lunch duty. <laughs> bus duty. You know, you know, or if a principal comes, and, and, and we would have meetings with our superintendents every year at the beginning of the year. Hey, you're getting a coach. This is what the coach can do. This is what they can't do. You can't say, hey, you know, I have a teacher who's running late. So can you go and watch their class for a little while? You can't, mm-hmm. you know, because the coach ends up being in there all day because the sub is now not coming. Oh, it, by 11 o'clock, well, the sub's not going to come. So you right. can't stay there until, you know, so the, all of these things that we made very clear, uh, and, and we were able to do that because there were coaches coming from the state agency to say, these are the other things, that, like their job is to coach and support, you know, you and your teachers and these other things will get in the way of them doing that. Um, so I think that that was also extremely important. That's awesome. Well, I, I will link your information in the show notes. Um, is, there, is there a place where on I don't, are you on uh, social media outlets? Is there, you want to you want to pump yourself up right now? Take a minute yes, and post, I, let everybody know where they can find you. <laughs> um, I, you know what? <laughs> you just put me on the spot because I have no idea what my Twitter. Uh, I'll I think find I you, Yana Burke or something. It might just be my name. Uh, but I'll try to find you. <laughs> yeah, if you search Kim Yana, I mean. There's really <laughs> one, right? So if you search that spelled the way that my name is spelled, uh, then you'll definitely find me on Twitter. So okay, well, uh, well you know, I'll put your name in the title of the podcast so that everybody, good. so they can listen to this part and be like, oh yeah, Twitter. Okay, done. Yeah. Uh, so sounds we good. always, I found it. Always, I found it. Oh, you found it. Go ahead. <laughs> See, it's, I told you, <laughs> Kimyana underscore Burke. That's what it is. Easy and simple. Perfect. Uh, Well, so good. So everybody can find you on Twitter. Um, I will link Excel and Ed because of the good work that you're doing. And thank you for, thank you for doing this work. Um, But we always ask our our guests at the end of the podcast to leave a piece of advice for our listeners. And uh, we're hopeful that you'll give our listeners a piece of advice to really consider. I think you've given them so much to think about, but Mm -hmm. um, anything you'd like them to either leave them with or ruminate on. Up to you. All right. So I will say this. Um, as a parent, it's just extremely important to be uh, engaged, um, however that looks like for you, um, and, and to be empowered and to know that um, you are a partner uh, with your child's teachers and with your child's school. And there is no question that you can ask uh, that should not be answered because I'm, I'm very, very... Um, I'm a proponent of, of parents being empowered. Um, as an educator, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, to our teachers, you all have done just amazing work uh, and are to be celebrated. Never stop learning. 
never stop. Uh, you know, I've had my my ex mother in law is uh, was an English teacher, uh, and she taught for forty three years before she retired. Um, oh wow, <laughs> she's still very active, uh, but she taught for forty three years uh, before she retired. But when I started doing professional development at the state agency, she would come to my trainings <laughs> at high school. But she would come to my trainings because she just always wanted to learn more. Uh, so just never stop learning. These opportunities, these resources, uh, what um, this space has provided for us with now things on Zoom and access and all of just take advantage mm-hmm. of those things. And that's for everyone who's in this fight. Um pre-pandemic, during pandemic, <laughs> to, to post-pandemic, um, that we will get through this. There are things that were highlighted, like the access or lack thereof to broadband. All of these things were necessary so that we can now ensure that our students, all students, have what they need to work at home, for teachers to be able to do things at home. Teachers were you know, driving to a McDonald's to get a hotspot. Mm-hmm. You know, so now because these things have been brought to light, I just think that they're going to propel us into, uh, you know, just just the next phase of what we are to do to just uh, make education um, what it needs to be again in the country. So I just appreciate the work of everyone else uh, in <laughs> our children are successful and that we improve their quality of life. And I'll say this last thing that I would say to my staff when we started every year. We are partly responsible for who these children turn out to be. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's great. I was wondering who you were giving your advice to because you're at like every layer of (laughs) education. So I'm glad you gave it to each part. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, Well, you've inspired me just talking with you. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We can't wait for everybody to hear this. This is, you're just, um, I just keep thinking your voice is like so poised and beautiful. Like the way that you're articulating everything just makes it so easy to understand. So thank you for that. I learned so much from you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. And let me know how your letters journey. (laughs) I will, I will. (laughs) Thank you so so much, much, Kimiana. Have a great day. You guys too. Bye. Bye. Bye.